Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Deep Dive, a Dallas County Public Defender podcast that seeks to educate, inform, and expose all our listeners to what is really going on in the American justice system. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Lynn Pride Richardson, and I serve as Chief Public Defender for Dallas County. Dallas County is the second largest county in the state of Texas and the ninth largest county in the United States. Our offices are located here in the city of Dallas, which is the fourth largest metropolitan area in the country behind New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Our county jails and prisons have become depositories for many of our most vulnerable citizens, those who have a mental illness. You know, America is experiencing a mental health crisis that escalated during the COVID pandemic. It was actually pretty bad before the pandemic, but COVID certainly exacerbated the situation. The crisis impacts both adults and children, all ages, all races. It has no respecter of social or economic status. It impacts the wealthy, the middle class, and the poor. The difference being that some have the resources to get a higher level of care and the poor are disproportionately affected because they don't have access to the same kind of treatment that can be impactful. I am really super excited to have as our first two guests here to talk about mental health services, support and treatment here in Dallas County and in a six county region, two individuals that I have the utmost respect for. I am fortunate to have had the opportunity to meet and work with both of them as members of the Dallas County Behavioral Health Leadership Team Committee. First, I would like to introduce Carol Lucky, the CEO of the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority, also known as NIPA. Carol has been working in the mental health and substance use field for over 35 years. She has served as CEO of Child and Family Guidance Center in Dallas, Director of Mental Health Services for Dallas MetroCare, CEO of Austin Family House, Managed Care Officer for the Center for Healthcare Services in San Antonio, and Chief of Community Service Reimbursement for TDMHMR, and perhaps you'll tell us what those alphabets mean, which is now part of Texas Health and Human Services. Carol has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Southwestern University, a master's degree in human services administration from St. Edwards University. Carol is a rock star in the field of mental health, and so we welcome her to the deep dive. Welcome, Carol. Thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that. <laughs> We're also excited about having Dr. Walter Taylor here with us today. Dr. Taylor currently serves as the Chief Strategy Officer for the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority under the leadership of Carol Lucky. In his role as the Chief Strategy Officer for the organization, he works with the senior leadership team to plan and provide NIPA's behavioral health services in the six-county region. Dr. Taylor also serves as an adjunct professor of business and political science at Paul Quinn College. Throughout his career, he has served in a number of capacities and worn many, many leadership hats in not only the public behavioral health sector, but in pastoral ministry as well. 
He earned a Bachelor of Science in Organizational Management from Oklahoma Christian University, a Master of Arts in History and Theology from Abilene Christian University, a Master of Public Administration and a PhD in Public Administration and Public Policy from the University of Texas in Arlington. Dr. Taylor was recently board certified in healthcare management and is now a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Now to all of our listeners, we have a powerhouse of a leadership team in the field of behavioral health here today. Again, I'd like to thank you for being here. Um, I have some questions. First of all, tell us a little bit, let's start with Carol, about what is a behavioral health authority? Well, in our area, Behavioral Health Authority is responsible for the overall uh, mental health and substance use services um, that are provided in our county with a focus on individuals who uh, are indigent or very low income. So we organize, we contract with the state, we contract with the federal government, we receive funding from the uh, local counties that we serve. And with those funds, we are charged with providing a full range of services to those two groups um, considered behavioral health. Uh, here at North Texas Behavioral Health Authority, we take uh, that very, very seriously and do everything we can to always say yes to people and not say no. We serve uh, more individuals than any other region in the state. Um, in fact, about double uh, from our second um, biggest um, county. So our goal is to get services out to people, to get quality services out to people, to give them a choice of providers who they can get their services from, and to ensure that we are doing the best to provide to individuals in our community, regardless of their ability to pay. Now, is this unique to this part of Texas? Do you have behavioral health authorities located in other parts of Texas? Do you have them in other parts of the country? Um, or is this some sort of unique operation or different from what other counties and states and jurisdictions are dealing with when they're um, providing services to those with a mental illness? Well, yes and no, Lynn, is the answer to that. Uh, everyone does have, in Texas, everyone has a mental health authority um, that covers either one or multiple counties. So they're represented throughout the the counties and the nation in general, most places have something that looks like a behavioral health authority, but they may call it something different uh, state by state. However, North Texas Behavioral Health Authority has chosen to do business differently. And the reason we're able to reach out to so many people and serve such a large population of individuals, about 34,000 people a month, is because we don't say we're going to do it all ourselves. We do some high-end services ourselves, but the majority of our services are contracted out to a group of providers. And by doing this, we are able to meet people in different ways, in different areas, give people that choice. Uh, most places, the authority also does the services. Here in Dallas, the authority oversees the process, does some services, but the majority of services are done by a group of providers in the community. It gives us the opportunity to ensure that we have cultural competency, uh, that we have multiple locations throughout the community, not just you know where it's easy for us to reach, but by having a lot of small, mid, and large providers, we're able to have clinics 
fairly accessible to, to all of our areas. So where does your funding come from? The funding is a combination of state funding. That's our main funding is for the state of Texas. Uh, we also get federal funding for specialty projects. And then our local government here, particularly our Dallas County uh, government, is very, very generous in making sure that we have the funds needed to reach um, throughout our community. And I assume that you don't just do this in a vacuum, that you partner with other organizations um, and groups. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Taylor? Yes, we, like Carol said, you know, we contract out a lot of these services. And so some of our larger providers are going to be like Dallas Metro Care Services. Some of your listeners uh, may be familiar with that organization, or they may have friends or family that are getting services. We also contract with Child and Family Guidance Center. Uh, we contract with Homeward Bound, uh, APA, and a host of other providers. And then we partner with the counties. We partner with schools, uh, getting out mental health first aid. Uh, the, the real gist of our business is collaboration. And as Carol and you pointed out earlier, we could not do this by ourselves, nor could we do this in a vac vacuum. So we really try to partner with uh, those that are contracted with us, but really anyone who is touching the community and wanting to bring behavioral health services to the lowest common access point. So Carol, how did you decide to get into this area. I mean, it's always been fascinating to me to figure out why people do the kinds of work that they do. What motivated you to work in the behavioral health field? Well, I definitely have a social service mindset, and I always knew I wanted to do something in the uh, health and caring community. Um, but in addition to that, uh, my family has a history of mental illness and substance use. And that uh, runs back through many generations. So it's something that I've always been around. It's something that I've always known um, is difficult to deal with. Um, my family, it was not wealthy. Um, and finding services and accessing services was always very, very difficult um, for for our, our people to access. So being able to work in this field is sort of, I guess, a homecoming of sorts. Uh, the people we serve are the, the are my family. Um, they look like my family does. They act like my family does. They need services like my family does. So it's um, kind of a blessing that I'm able to serve um, that group of people and to know more about it and always be able to help my family access what they need. That's wonderful. Um, we need people that are committed like you guys are. And Dr. Taylor, I know you have a special story to tell. How did you end up working in this field? Um, you've got quite a resume. You've got a lot of degrees there. How did you end up here and why? Well, it's like Carol said, and it's, a, it's really a God deal. I was 17 years old and getting in a lot of trouble. And had a really good public defender like yourself that arranged for me to go to a treatment facility rather than going to prison. And so upon graduating and the facility that I was in, they offered me a counselor assistant position. So that's really how I got in the field. I, I came into the field as someone using the services and benefiting from them, and it changed my life. So I got in the field and began to work through school and get degrees and kind of work my way up. Uh, but like Carol also said, you know, mental health challenges and substance use run in my family. So it's very personal work. 
and finally, you know, I was in full-time ministry at one point and felt like I wanted to do more and felt the call to really just hunker down and finish out the education and just really allow for the public behavior health uh, sector to be my field of ministry. I'm reminded of Matthew 25, where he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you visited me. And so I see this very much as that type of social justice, uh, loaves and fishes, hands-on ministry. Uh, and it's just very rewarding. Uh, I feel like I'm in my dream job. Kudos, I gotta give that to Carol again, the best boss's day. So I wanna give her a shout out. And, and I just love what I do. Every day I get to come to work and plan and and make a difference in the lives of our people in our community, like myself, like my family, uh, loved ones, friends. And it's just a, a great, very rewarding calling and work. Well, we're so happy that both of you are involved in this kind of work, but we have to admit it's challenging. Um, we're dealing with more and more individuals who are suffering from mental illness. Uh, resources can sometimes be limited. Um, I know Carol is part of your role uh, with, with NIPBA. It is that you've got to seek out funding to provide services for people from all different parts of these different counties. And so I would imagine there's a lot of stress associated with this kind of work, yet there are a lot of rewards as, as, as well. But tell us a little bit about the biggest challenges that NEPA faces in, in working in this space. I think the challenges are always, of course, money-based. Uh, we're always searching for the funding um, to make sure that services are out to people. And we really, really want the services that are given to our, our people to look like they would if they were services uh, for people who had, you know, insurance or money. Um, and, and that is a challenge to create a service structure that is dignified enough for our, our very important uh, consumers, sometimes with very limited funds. Um, we're very lucky to have partners who also are searching for funds and finding other ways to uh, add to the small um, amount of funding that we do receive. Um, challenges also include getting the word out. Uh, unlike a lot of organizations, we don't have a big um, advertising budget, and we want people to know that services are there for them if, if they need them. Um, and of course, staying on top of kind of the best and uh, most effective treatments as we, we move through the system of course, medications. Sometimes a really good medication comes out. We do everything we can to ensure that those top-level medications are available to our consumers. Um, but that is sometimes a bit of a funding juggle and nightmare. Um, and then different protocols, different approaches, um, trying to reach and find services that, that meet different uh, populations. Uh, for instance, competency restoration. Um, we work with you guys a lot with uh, people who need to have their competency restored uh, so they can uh, finish their journey through, through the court system. Emergency services, um, challenges like a spike in suicidality. Uh, that's, that's always very difficult because you're not talking about necessarily reaching out to a single person. You're trying to reach out and get information out to an entire population. So we're prepared for um, instances and know how to respond um, in the event someone might appear to be suicidal. 
So uh, it's not just about serving individuals. It's about serving the community and being able to reach out and reach all the right people at all the right times is, is always a challenge. Seems like in recent years that we've gotten more funding here in Dallas County and in, in various parts of the state from our state legislature as it relates to funding for services for mental illness, for more beds in state hospital. Walter, can you share with us a little bit about that? I get really excited about, you know, every two years or so, we engage at a deeper level with the legislature throughout the year. We're talking to elected officials. And behavioral health is a very bipartisan issue. I mean, you could have people that are, you know, would identify as being very conservative or people that would identify as being very progressive. And behavioral health is a very bipartisan issue. And I think, as you pointed out, Lynn, coming out of COVID, uh, with the suicide rate going up in terms of black and brown males and in terms of the demographics that uh, historically has not seen those spikes uh, with uh, the ideation among the young folks and just in general coming out of a pandemic and people becoming more aware uh, the stigma being addressed in a way that, you know, more people are with the notion of it's okay not to be okay. So I think I think a lot of things are working well to get people to a point where they really see there is a need uh, to continue to fund uh, behavioral health and to do innovative things. Uh, you know, with our folks that we're serving, they're indigent. So not only are they living through behavioral health challenges, but they also are trying to meet everyday needs with the social determinants of health, housing, transportation, things like that. So I think policymakers overall are at least more aware and more willing to invest in resources that the people need that, that we're serving. And this is a question for both of you. How can our listeners get involved to assist with this? The most important part is reaching out to um, your elected officials, and that would be both at the state level and the national level, um, as well as, of course, at the local level. Um, we do feel more supported than we have in years gone by because, as Walter said, there seems to be more acknowledgement and realization um, of the problem. Sadly, the fentanyl crisis and the deaths that are coming from that has also um, led to some attention um, because, like you said, when we opened, uh, fentanyl knows no socioeconomic, racial, class, um, gender barriers. Uh, it is striking people without warning. Um, so I think that that has um, opened up some eyes as well. Um, so definitely making sure that, that the word gets out. Um, we talk a lot about mental health funding. Substance use disorder funding is, is even lower than the mental health funding. Um, so those are the, the things that ask for, let people know that this is an important, or let their um, elected officials know that this is an important topic and it's uh, worthy of funding. I think just uh, continuing to talk about it, to raise awareness, I think the more that we can normalize in our communities and our families and our churches and the barbershop, the beauty shop, normalize help seeking uh, behaviors, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And the good thing is, is that help is available and the key is to get the help that you need. I, I think, uh, you know, really encouraging people, in addition to what Carol said about contacting 
our policymakers to talk about the importance, but also educating everybody we come in contact with about what is available currently uh, so that people can get access and get the help that they need. You mentioned churches, and um, that leads me to ask questions. I, I know since I have the honor of serving on a committee that we talk about the training that your staff, first of all, how many people are working there in NIPA? Yeah, we have about 150, but then we have uh, some joint employers, which are about 350 um, that are with Homeward Bound, uh, Child and Family Guidance Center, and Southern Area Behavioral Health. And then there's also hundreds of people working at our different providers. So I would say as far as uh, people funded by NITPA or partially funded by NITPA uh, that are working in this community is well over a thousand. Wow, that's incredible. And you're talking about, as we mentioned, as everybody has mentioned, we're dealing with all ages, all races, ethnicities. We have people who don't speak English. Um, how are you dealing with that and how are you training or preparing your staff to deal with people from different backgrounds? And Walter heads up our diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Um, and I'll, let, I'll toss it to him because he is our leader um, and very, very knowledgeable uh, on that topic. Okay. Thank you, Carol. And, and you know, and I got to give Carol kudos because you really have to have a leader that is aware of the need and wants to do more to really drill down to meet the needs of, let's say, the African-American community, the Hispanic Latino community, the Asian community, the LGBTQI plus community, the veterans, young people. And so what we've uh, attempted to do under the rubric of culturally and linguistically appropriate services is work with consultants. Uh, we have had Dr. Gloria Morrow, who is a uh, licensed clinical psychologist, uh, nationally known trainer to bring in multicultural competency training. And so what we do with our staff and our providers is we try to do a lot of training around the historically oppressed and underserved uh, racial and ethnic groups, along with uh, people who have other disabilities, uh, the LGBTQI. So a lot of training goes in. And then we target things. And so, you know, last year, uh, Carol and I gave a report to the BHLT, and we showed that not only locally, but nationally, there's an uptick in suicide among black and brown males. So we contracted again with Dr. Gloria Morrow to bring in a training called The Things That Make Men Cry. And we've partnered with churches and continue to partner with churches to push that out so that you know, where people, like you said, Lynn, they may go to their pastor, they may go to a men's Bible study, but they may be less prone to go seek counseling, therapy, or medication. And so we bring these to churches to where we get in there and Dr. Mara and other consultants that we work with really take these type of trainings and access points to the people in the community. And uh, we continue to look at data around the number of people that we're serving uh, we serve anywhere in a given year, about 35% African-American, about 25% Hispanic and Latino, and the rest are going to be Caucasian, uh, mixed groups, Asian, uh, Vietnamese. So we, we serve a, a really diverse population, and, and we just really try to, to target the training. You know, How do we deal with issues that are particular to the Black, Indigenous, people of color? 
How do we deal with issues that are particular to uh, people who identify as lesbian, gay, transgender, uh, and, and people from all walks of life? And so we're just constantly looking at and creating a plan. So it's not haphazard. We're working on a plan that we tweak annually and we're uh, having our providers that have to do the same so that, you know, we have appropriate language line, we have appropriate publications in, in the different, you know, uh, language groups that are that are a part of our population. Now, the last thing I would like for you to, um, to tell our listening uh, audience is how do we get in contact with uh, your organization, if some, if you have a loved one that's mentally ill or you're in need of services and you don't know where to turn, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, what's the mechanism that they can utilize to find out how they can get services and can you assist them in that? Absolutely. Uh, one thing is our website, ntbha.org, which, which stands for the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority.org. There is information on the website about how to access services and as well as provider lists about the multiple places that you can access services. Um, there's also a, a referral line that we have. It's 800-241-8716. Once again, our referral line is 800-241-8716. And if you call there and give some specifics about what your needs are, um, they'll be able to hook you up to the right place. And then, of course, there's our crisis line. So if you have someone in crisis, the number is 866-260-8000. And, of course, in a desperate situation, um, emergency, there's 911. Um, so that, that is always one access. And we do have staff at the 911 center as well as um, other locations around the community. So hopefully we will hear from you before crisis, um, but if we do not, we are there to help you through a crisis and then guide you through the system and the resources after that crisis is resolved. I would like to once again thank Carol Lucky and Dr. Walter Taylor from the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority for appearing on the deep dive and kicking off our series on mental illness. It is our intent to educate you on what services are available, not only nationwide, but here in Dallas County and other parts of North Texas to assist you or a family member or a friend who has a mental health diagnosis and is in need of services, information, or help in either navigating the mental health, behavioral health system, or in figuring out what to do to aid and assist someone who is struggling with mental illness and to help those who maybe are resistant to getting treatment and help. So again, thank you for appearing in the Deep Dive. Our next episode in this series will feature Dallas County Criminal Court Judge Kristen Wade, who presides over County Criminal Court of Appeals Number 1, which is located at the Frank Crowley Criminal Courts Building. Judge Wade is a misdemeanor county court judge who started the very first mental health diversion court of its kind here in the state of Texas. Please let us know how we're doing here on The Deep Dive. If you like the information we are providing, or let us know if there is another topic you would like us to cover. If you have any questions about the Dallas County Courts, our office, or the justice system in general, you can contact us here at the Dallas County Public Defender's Office by calling 214-653-3550. Hello. 
Find us on Instagram at Dallas Public Defenders or visit our website, dallascounty.org slash government slash public dash defender. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The Deep Dive is a production of the Dallas County Public Defender's Office, and it is produced by Alexis McCowan, Vicki Rice, Michaela Himes, Paul Blocker, and Lynn Pride Richardson.